Pope John Paul II's The Gospel of Life, Chapter 3, Part 4. We must obey God rather than men. Civil law and the moral law. One of the specific characteristics of present-day attacks on human life, as has already been said several times, consists in the trend to demand a legal justification for them, as if they were rights which the state, at least under certain conditions, must acknowledge as belonging to citizens. Consequently, there is a tendency to claim that it should be possible to exercise these rights with the safe and free assistance of doctors and medical personnel. It is often claimed that the life of an unborn child or a seriously disabled person is only a relative good, according to a proportionalist approach or one of sheer calculation. This good should be compared with and balanced against other goods. It is even maintained that only someone present and personally involved in a concrete situation can correctly judge the goods at stake. Consequently, only that person would be able to decide on the morality of his choice. The state, therefore, in the interest of civil coexistence and social harmony, should respect this choice even to the point of permitting abortion and euthanasia. At other times, it is claimed that civil law cannot demand that all citizens should live according to moral standards higher than what all citizens themselves acknowledge and share. Hence, the law should always express the opinion and will of the majority of citizens and recognize that they have, at least in certain extreme cases, the right even to abortion and euthanasia. Moreover, the prohibition and punishment of abortion and euthanasia in these cases would inevitably lead, so it is said, to an increase of illegal practices, and these would not be subject to necessary control by society and would be carried out in a medically unsafe way. The question is also raised whether supporting a law which in practice cannot be enforced would not ultimately undermine the authority of all laws. Finally, the more radical views go so far as to maintain that in a modern and pluralistic society, people should be allowed complete freedom to dispose of their own lives, as well as of the lives of the unborn. It is asserted that it is not the task of the law to choose between different moral opinions, and still less can the law claim to impose one particular opinion to the detriment of others. In any case, in the democratic culture of our time, it is commonly held that the legal system of any society should limit itself to taking account of and accepting the convictions of the majority. It should therefore be based solely upon what the majority itself considers moral and actually practices. Furthermore, if it is believed that an objective truth shared by all is de facto unattainable, then respect for the freedom of the citizens, who in a democratic system are considered the true rulers, would require that on the legislative level, the autonomy of individual consciences be acknowledged. Consequently, when establishing those norms which are absolutely necessary for social coexistence, 
the only determining factor should be the will of the majority, whatever this may be. Hence, every politician, in his or her activity, should clearly separate the realm of private conscience from that of public conduct. As a result, we have what appear to be two diametrically opposed tendencies. On the one hand, individuals claim for themselves in the moral sphere the most complete freedom of choice and demand that the state should not adopt or impose any ethical position but limit itself to guaranteeing maximum space for the freedom of each individual with the sole limitation of not infringing on the freedom and rights of any other citizen. On the other hand, it is held that in the exercise of public and professional duties, respect for other people's freedom of choice requires that each one should set aside his or her own convictions in order to satisfy every demand of the citizens which is recognized and guaranteed by law. In carrying out one's duties, the only moral criterion should be what is laid down by the law itself. Individual responsibility is thus turned over to the civil law with a renouncing of personal conscience, at least in the public sphere. At the basis of all these tendencies lies the ethical relativism which characterizes much of present-day culture. There are those who consider such relativism an essential condition of democracy, inasmuch as it alone is held to guarantee tolerance, mutual respect between people, and acceptance of the decisions of the majority, whereas moral norms, considered to be objective and binding, are held to lead to author authoritarianism and intolerance. But it is precisely the issue of respect for life which shows what misunderstandings and contradictions, accompanied by terrible practical consequences, are concealed in this position. It is true that history has known cases where crimes have been committed in the name of quote-unquote truth, but equally grave crimes and radical denials of freedom have also been committed and are still being committed in the name of ethical relativism. When a parliamentary or social majority decrees that it is legal, at least under certain conditions, to kill unborn human life, is it not really making a tyrannical decision with regard to the weakest and most defenseless of human beings? Everyone's conscience rightly rejects those crimes against humanity of which our century, nota bene, the 20th century, has had such sad experience. But would these crimes cease to be crimes if, instead of being committed by unscrupulous tyrants, they were legitimated by popular consensus? Democracy cannot be idolized to the point of making it a substitute for morality or a panacea for immorality. Fundamentally, democracy is a system, and as such is a means and not an end. Its moral value is not automatic, but depends on conformity to the moral law, to which it, like every other form of human behavior, must be subject. In other words, its morality depends on the morality of the ends which it pursues and of the means which it employs. If today we see an almost universal consensus with regard to the value of democracy, this is to be considered a positive sign of the times, as the church's magisterium has frequently noted. 
But the value of democracy stands or falls with the values which it embodies and promotes. Of course, values such as the dignity of every human person, respect for inviolable and inalienable human rights, and the adoption of the common good as the end and criterion regulating political life are certainly fundamental and not to be ignored. The basis of these values cannot be provisional and changeable majority opinions, but only the acknowledgement of an objective moral law, which, as the natural law written in the human heart, is the obligatory point of reference for civil law itself. If, as a result of a tragic obscuring of the collective conscience, an attitude of skepticism were to succeed in bringing into question even the fundamental principles of the moral law, the democratic system itself would be shaken in its foundations and would be reduced to a mere mechanism for regulating different and opposing interests on a purely empirical basis. Some might think that even this function, in the absence of anything better, should be valued for the sake of peace in society. While one acknowledges some element of truth in this point of view, it is easy to see that without an objective moral grounding, not even democracy is capable of ensuring a stable peace, especially since peace which is not built upon the values of the dignity of every individual and of solidarity between all people, frequently proves to be illusory. Even in participatory systems of government, the regulation of interests often occurs to the advantage of the most powerful, since they are the ones most capable of maneuvering not only the levers of power, but also of shaping the formation of consensus. In such a situation, democracy easily becomes an empty word. It is therefore urgently necessary for the future of society and the development of a sound democracy to rediscover those essential and innate human and moral values which flow from the very truth of the human being and express and safeguard the dignity of the person, values which no individual, no majority, and no state can ever create, modify, or destroy, but must only acknowledge, respect, and promote. Consequently, there is a need to recover the basic elements of a vision of the relationship between civil law and moral law, which are put forward by the church, but which are also part of the patrimony of the great juridical traditions of humanity. Certainly, the purpose of civil law is different and more limited in scope than that of the moral law. But in no sphere of life can the civil law take the place of conscience or dictate norms concerning things which are outside its competence, which is that of ensuring the common good of people through the recognition and defense of their fundamental rights and the promotion of peace and of public morality. The real purpose of civil law is to guarantee an ordered social coexistence in true justice, so that all may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. Precisely for this reason, civil law must ensure that all members of society enjoy respect for certain fundamental rights which innately belong to the person, rights which every positive law must recognize and guarantee. First and fundamental among these is the inviolable right to life of every innocent human being. While public authority can sometimes choose not to put a stop to something which 
were it prohibited, would cause more serious harm. It can never presume to legitimize as a right of individuals, even if they are the majority of the members of society, an offense against other persons caused by the disregard of so fundamental a right as the right to life. The legal toleration of abortion or of euthanasia can in no way claim to be based on respect for the conscience of others, precisely because society has the right and the duty to protect itself against the abuses which can occur in the name of conscience and under the pretext of freedom. In the encyclical Pachamenteris, John XXIII pointed out that, quote, it is generally accepted today that the common good is best safeguarded when personal rights and duties are guaranteed. The chief concern of civil authorities must therefore be to ensure that these rights are recognized, respected, coordinated, defended, and promoted, and that each individual is enabled to perform his duties more easily. For to safeguard the inviolable rights of the human person and to facilitate the performance of his duties is the principal duty of every public authority. Thus, any government which refused to recognize human rights or acted in violation of them would not only fail in its duty, its decrees would be wholly lacking in binding force. Unquote. The doctrine of the necessary conformity of civil law with the moral law is in continuity with the whole tradition of the church. This is clear once more from John XXIII's encyclical, quote, authority is a postulate of the moral order and derives from God. Consequently, laws and decrees enacted in contravention of the moral order and hence of the divine will can have no binding force in conscience. Indeed, the passing of such laws undermines the very nature of authority and results in shameful abuse. Unquote. This is the clear teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, who writes that, quote, human law is law inasmuch as it is in conformity with right reason and thus derives from the eternal law. But when a law is contrary to reason, it is called an unjust law. But in this case, it ceases to be a law and becomes instead an act of violence, unquote. And again, quote, Every law made by man can be called a law insofar as it derives from the natural law. But if it is somehow opposed to the natural law, then it is not really a law, but rather a corruption of the law." Unquote. Now, the first and most immediate application of this teaching concerns a human law which disregards the fundamental right and source of all other rights, which is the right to life, a right belonging to every individual. Consequently, laws which legitimize the direct killing of innocent human beings through abortion or euthanasia are in complete opposition to the inviolable right to life proper to every individual. They thus deny the equality of everyone before the law. It might be objected that such is not the case in euthanasia when it is requested with full awareness by the person involved. But any state which made such a request legitimate and authorized it to be carried out would be legalizing a case of suicide murder, contrary to the fundamental principles of absolute respect for life and of the protection of every innocent life. In this way, the state contributes to lessening respect for life and opens the door to ways of acting which are destructive of trust in relations between people. 
Laws which authorize and promote abortion and euthanasia are therefore radically opposed, not only to the good of the individual, but also to the common good. As such, they are completely lacking in authentic juridical validity. Disregard for the right to life, precisely because it leads to the killing of the person whom society exists to serve, is what most directly conflicts with the possibility of achieving the common good. Consequently, a civil law authorizing abortion or euthanasia ceases by that very fact to be a true morally binding civil law. Abortion and euthanasia are thus crimes which no human law can claim to legitimize. There is no obligation in conscience to obey such laws. Instead, there is a grave and clear obligation to oppose them by conscientious objection. From the very beginnings of the church, the apostolic preaching reminded Christians of their duty to obey legitimately constituted public authorities, but at the same time it firmly warned that we must obey God rather than men. In the Old Testament, precisely in regard to threats against life, we find a significant example of resistance to the unjust command of those in authority. After Pharaoh ordered the killing of all newborn males, the Hebrew midwives refused. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. But the ultimate reason for their action should be noted. The midwives feared God. It is precisely from obedience to God, to whom alone is due that fear, which is acknowledgement of his absolute sovereignty, that the strength and the courage to resist unjust human laws are born. It is the strength and the courage of those prepared even to be imprisoned or put to the sword in the certainty that this is what makes for the endurance and faith of the saints. In the case of an intrinsically unjust law, such as a law permitting abortion or euthanasia, it is therefore never licit to obey it or to take part in a propaganda campaign in favor of such a law or vote for it. A particular problem of conscience can arise in cases where a legislative vote would be decisive for the passage of a more restrictive law aimed at limiting the number of authorized abortions in place of a more permissive law already passed or ready to be voted on. Such cases are not infrequent. It is a fact that while in some parts of the world there continue to be campaigns to introduce laws favoring abortion, often supported by powerful international organizations, in other nations, particularly those which have already experienced the bitter fruits of such permissive legislation, there are growing signs of a rethinking in this matter. In a case like the one just mentioned, when it is not possible to overturn or completely abrogate a pro-abortion law, an elected official whose absolute personal opposition to procured abortion was well known could licitly support proposals aimed at limiting the harm done by such a law and at lessening its negative consequences at the level of general opinion and public morality. This does not, in fact, represent an illicit cooperation with an unjust law, but rather a legitimate and proper attempt to limit its evil aspects. The passing of unjust laws often raises difficult problems of conscience for morally upright people with regard to the issue of cooperation, since they have a right to demand not to be forced to take part in morally evil actions. Sometimes the choices which have to be made are difficult. They may require the sacrifice of prestigious professional positions or the relinquishing of reasonable hopes of career advancement. 
In other cases, it can happen that carrying out certain actions, which are provided for by legislation that overall is unjust, but which, which in themselves are indifferent or even positive, can serve to protect human lives under threat. There may be reason to fear, however, that willingness to carry out such actions will only cause scandal and weaken the necessary opposition to attacks on life, but will gradually lead to further capitulation to a mentality of permissiveness. In order to shed light on this difficult question, it is necessary to recall the general principles concerning cooperation in evil actions. Christians, like all people of goodwill, are called upon, under grave obligation of conscience, not to cooperate formally in practices which, even if permitted by civil legislation, are contrary to God's law. Indeed, from the moral standpoint, it is never licit to cooperate formally in evil. Such cooperation occurs when an action, either by its very nature or by the form it takes in a concrete situation, can be defined as a direct participation in an act against innocent human life, or a sharing in the immoral intention of the person committing it. This cooperation can never be justified, either by invoking respect for the freedom of others, or by appealing to the fact that civil law permits it or requires it. Each individual, in fact, has moral responsibility for the acts which he personally performs. No one can be exempted from this responsibility, and on the basis of it, everyone will be judged by God himself. To refuse to take part in committing an injustice is not only a moral duty, it is also a basic human right. Were this not so, the human person would be forced to perform an action intrinsically incompatible with human dignity, and in this way, human freedom itself the authentic meaning and purpose of which are found in its orientation to the true and the good, would be radically compromised. What is at stake, therefore, is an essential right which, precisely as such, should be acknowledged and protected by civil law. In this sense, the opportunity to refuse to take part in the phases of consultation, preparation, and execution of these acts against life should be guaranteed to physicians, healthcare personnel, and directors of hospitals, clinics, and convalescent facilities. Those who have recourse to conscientious objection must be protected, not only from legal penalties, but also from any negative effects on the legal, disciplinary, financial, and professional plane. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Promote life. God's commandments teach us the way of life. The negative moral precepts, which declare that the choice of certain actions is morally unacceptable, have an absolute value for human freedom. They are valid always and everywhere without exception. They make it clear that the choice of certain ways of acting is radically incompatible with the love of God and with the dignity of the person created in his image. Such choices cannot be redeemed by the goodness of any intention or of any consequence. They are irrevocably opposed to the bond between persons. They contradict the fundamental decision to direct one's life to God. In this sense, the negative moral precepts have an extremely important positive function. The no, which they unconditionally require, makes clear the absolute limit beneath which free individuals cannot lower themselves. At the same time, they indicate the minimum which they must respect and from which they must start out in order to say yes over and over again, a yes, which will gradually embrace the entire horizon of the good. The commandments, in particular the negative moral precepts, 
are the beginning and the first necessary stage of the journey towards freedom. As St. Augustine writes, quote, The beginning of freedom is to be free from crimes, like murder, adultery, fornication, theft, fraud, sacrilege, and so forth. Only when one stops committing these crimes, and no Christian should commit them, one begins to lift up one's head towards freedom. But this is only the beginning of freedom, not perfect freedom. Unquote. The commandment, you shall not kill, thus establishes the point of departure for the start of true freedom. It leads us to promote life actively and to develop particular ways of thinking and acting which serve life. In this way, we exercise our responsibility towards the persons entrusted to us, and we show, in deed and in truth, our gratitude to God for the great gift of life. The Creator has entrusted man's life to his responsible concern, not to make arbitrary use of it, but to preserve it with wisdom and to care for it with loving fidelity. The God of the covenant has entrusted the life of every individual to his or her fellow human beings, brothers and sisters, according to the law of reciprocity in giving and receiving, of self-giving, and of the acceptance of others. In the fullness of time, by taking flesh and giving his life for us, the Son of God showed what heights and depths this law of reciprocity can reach. With the gift of his Spirit, Christ gives new content and meaning to the law of reciprocity, to our being entrusted to one another. The Spirit, who builds up communion in love, creates between us a new fraternity and solidarity, a true reflection of the mystery of mutual self-giving and receiving proper to the Most Holy Trinity. The Spirit becomes the new law, which gives strength to believers and awakens in them a responsibility for sharing the gift of self and for accepting others as a sharing in the boundless love of Jesus Christ himself. This new law also gives spirit and shape to the commandment, you shall not kill. For the Christian, it involves an absolute imperative to respect, love, and promote the life of every brother and sister in accordance with the requirements of God's bountiful love in Jesus Christ. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The commandment, you shall not kill, even in its more positive aspects of respecting, loving, and promoting human life, is binding on every individual human being. It resounds in the moral conscience of everyone as an irrepressible echo of the original covenant of God the Creator with mankind. It can be recognized by everyone through the light of reason, and it can be observed thanks to the mysterious working of the Spirit who, blowing where he wills, comes to and involves every person living in this world. It is therefore a service of love, which we are all committed to ensure to our neighbor, that his or her life may be always defended and promoted, especially when it is weak or threatened. It is not only a personal but a social concern which we must all foster, a concern to make unconditional respect for human life the foundation of a renewed society. We are asked to love and honor the life of every man and woman and to work with perseverance and courage so that our time, marked by all too many signs of death, may at last witness the establishment of a new culture of life, the fruit of the culture of truth and of love.
next time, the beginning of chapter 4.